Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, we're continuing on with uh, our episodes of George Washington. After he left the Ohio Valley area, George returned home to the tranquility of Mount Vernon. He envisioned his future of, to, of a southern planter, earning his living in the agrarian lifestyle among his family and friends. He also associated with the land gentry of the area and kept pace with current events. So we're going to talk about Mount Vernon and compare it plantation and or versus manufacturing. The main family crop in Mount Vernon plantation was tobacco. Unlike other landowners in Virginia, assumed a lot of the duties and management on the plantation and adjoining farm. He rose early, patrolled his estate, and even broke in new horses himself. In addition, he was his own clerk and carefully kept track of supplies and expenditures needed to run Mount Vernon. In the interest of frugality, he established some manufacturing on site. When he made his rounds, Washington firmly advised his workers that they shouldn't buy anything they could not make themselves. There was a blacksmith shop on the premises for the horses, and the blacksmith sold services to neighbors' farms as well. Washington also built a small flour mill. He also had a specialty fashioned wood burner built for the making of charcoal to heat the entire house. Washington employed the services of a number of carpenters whom he hired out to frame houses near Alexandria. A staff of weavers produced linen from wool purchased from England. What they couldn't manufacture at Mount Vernon was ordered through England. Near the river, Washington had a fishery. In his writings, Washington reported, this river is well supplied with various kinds of fish at all seasons of the year, shad, bass, herring, perch, carp, and sturgeon. The staff, as well as Washington and his family, ate fish from their own meals several days a week. So the marriage of George to Martha. After his return from the French and Indian War of 1758, Washington was elected to the House of Burgesses, which represented Virginia in British America. In that capacity, he met Francis Fulcure, a lieutenant governor in the colony of Williamsburg. It was there that George met a lovely widow named Mark Martha Custis. The two shared a mutual interest in agrarian life. As she helped her late husband manage their property, she also had children by the former marriage. Washington fell madly in love with this kind of attractive woman, and they courted just briefly. In 1759, they married. At the wedding, Martha was clad in silk and satin, while George wore silver and blue trimmed with scarlet. Martha then moved to Mount Vernon with her two children, Martha Park Custis, or Patsy, and Daniel Park Custis, or Jackie. Young Martha was four and Jackie two. George adopted them immediately. Because his bout with smallpox, this left Washington sterile. He was delighted to have a ready-made family with children. Unfortunately, little Patsy Custis was inflicted with epilepsy. George and Martha did what they could during those early years of seizures, but there was no medication for epilepsy in those days. Washington dearly loved little Martha and Jackie. As a matter of fact, his first order from England was 10 shillings worth of toys, six little books for young children, a fashionably dressed baby doll, and a box of gingerbread toys. 
It was his nature to care. As he looked upon his loving family, he decided to take them camping in the woods of Virginia. When they were enjoying the woods during the birth of spring of 1773, poor little Patsy had a serious epileptic fit. Although George and Martha tried to assist her as best they could, she did die. He held her with and rocked her with tender and ravished her body in his arms. In a later letter written to his friend, Burwell Bassett, he said, It is easier to conceive than to describe the distress of this family, especially that of the unhappy parent of our dear Patsy Custis, when I inform you that yesterday removed the sweet, innocent girl to a happy and peaceful abode than any she has met with and the inflicted path she hitherto has trod. He then spent three months with his wife while both them and Jackie mourned the, the passing of Patsy. Martha's late husband died instantaneously, so his estate was divided into two segments, one-third to Martha, one-third to Patsy, and one-third to Jackie. The estate took several years to study, but in the end, the Washingtons had 5,000 acres and 84 slaves. Balancing the finances for managing the acreage was sometimes burdensome for Washington and was sometimes very profitable. It all depended mostly upon the tobacco harvest. George Washington was very familiar with the lifestyle of being a wealthy landowner. So, of course, his favorite activities included dancing, the theater, fox hunting, and parties with a proper echelon in the colony. He and Martha occasionally went to the parties held in his festive barge and those of other planters in the area, including the Fairfaxes. The two of them would also attend balls in Richmond when the House of Burgesses was in session. At this point in life, Washington assumed that he could basically be a planter and a member of the Virginia aristocracy, and that the rest of his life would be spent in those pursuits. As a landowner, it was essential that he continue his involvement in politics because it affected him financially and socially. In the year 1761, he ran for re-election in the House of Burgesses and was voted in by a large margin. George was one of the younger members. He was 29 years old at that time. However, he made a commanding appearance at 6'2 with wide, strong shoulders. His arms and legs were muscular and he was impeccably dressed at all times. Oppression from England. During the mid-18th century, colonists felt the British king was becoming more aristocratic and tyrannical. New taxes were being levied upon them, and tax collectors were sent over to collect the funds, which were shipped back to England. There were steep import duties charged on products shipped from England also. British soldiers were continually present in the 13 colonies, patrolling the streets and frequently the bars and hotels. They often stopped people to question them, and the English governor and other officials from England made it a point to meddle in colonial affairs. The colonists became alarmed with the encroachment upon their freedom of rights, as well as the growing presence of troops in their colonial atmosphere. The Quartering Act of 1765. As the number of British soldiers grew, the public houses, hotels, or taverns, as they were called, were all filled. As a result of this lack of lodging, England passed the Quartering Act. This act permitted the soldiers to move into colonist buildings and even their homes on occasion when they desired. 
According to this new precept, no notification was needed, so British soldiers could enter at any time. They took full advantage of this and sometimes even demanded that the colonists provide food and a bed. If the colonists didn't comply with the Quartering Act, the royal governor in the colony wouldn't pay any local ordinances passed by the local assemblies or House of Burgesses, which perform functions in the community, including the organization of local militias in some of the colonies. They closed down the Houses of Burgesses for indefinite periods of time. It's almost like today when we're having this pandemic and our central government in Washington uh, is, is le- leveraging or leveraging f- to, to shut down funds to help uh, essential, essential workers in, in the states that need them. And it's, it's the same thing as what the, uh, the British were trying to, to pull on the colonists, or the uh, colonial uh, governors. The Stamp Act of 1765. England had been burdened with, by tremendous war debt after its involvement in the European theater of the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763. That war awakened hostilities among nearly all the countries in Europe over their territories and mercantile rights. The French and Indian War, in which Washington served, is considered part of that war. In order to pay for the debt, Prime Minister George Grenville suggested to King George III that he place a new tax on the colonies in British America. When the news hit the colonies, Patrick Henry, the fiery orator, leaped on the floor of the House of Burgesses and shouted, Caesar had his Brutus, Charles I his Cromwell, and George III may profit from their example. If this be treason, let's make the most of it. The people in the colonies were furious about the stamp tax. They already had to pay import duties on goods shipped from England. Washington also had to pay those duties, as he was accustomed to ordering many items from Great Britain for his own personal use. This approved stamp was placed upon all shipments of paper from England once the tax was remitted, and and this was the paper the colonists needed. After the Stamp Act was passed, few brought the paper and developed crude ways of making their own or reusing paper they already had. They also harassed the British tax collectors, those who were more devious about deals from England merchants to smuggle in paper. Washington himself spoke to other people in the area who frequently brought goods from England and suggested they also refrain from buying English products as much as possible and even refuse to sell tobacco to the English if they could afford it. He instructed the merchants in England to hold back shipments to Mount Vernon until that deplorable act was repealed. He once said in a letter to a Virginian, I am convinced, as much as I as am of my own existence, that there is no relief for us but in their own distress. And I think, at at least I hope, that there is public virtue enough left among us to deny ourselves everything but share the bare necessities of life to accomplish this end. When the anger of the colonists reached a fever pitch, an anchor and an activist group called the Sons of Liberty broke into the mansion of the English governor, Thomas Hutchinson, and sacked it. According to eyewitnesses, there was nothing left except for walls and the wooden floor. In addition, the Sons of Liberty did the same to Hutchinson's brother-in-law's house. He was, dis- he was despised about the Stamp Act 
as an administrator in Massachusetts. Though Washington's efforts and that of many of the colonists during that year, 1766, the Stamp Act was finally repealed. The Declaratory Act of 1766. Despite their concession to, by repeal of the Stamp Act, the haughty British Parliament and its king said that they had the full power and authority to make laws and statutes to, of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and people of America in all cases whatsoever. They then passed the Declaratory Act, which in essence it gave England the overarching right to do anything it pleased to the 13 colonies. It sounds very familiar today, doesn't it? The famous statesman from Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin, went over to London in 1766, indicating that the colonists already contributed substantially to England in its war against the primary foe, France. Even though the colonists were paying import duties and other taxes, they had no voting power in the English Parliament and no voice in Great Britain with regard to legislation that affected the British colonies. James Otis Jr., a member of the Massachusetts Provincial Assembly and a pamphleteer, coined the well-known phrase, taxation without representation is tyranny. Actions and reactions between the colonies and Great Britain continued and fermented hatred between the two in a war of words and deeds. Then the colonists were further assaulted by the passage of the Townsend Acts the year later. The Townsend's Acts of 1767. These acts placed taxes on paint, glass, paper, and tea. British tax collectors often intimidated the colonists to be sure the taxes were paid. In the port of Boston, regiments of British soldiers stood on guard to prevent smuggling and remind the colonists that they were subservient to Great Britain. Again, many of the colonists boycotted the English products, and England was barraged with letters from my rate colonists. In 1777, Britain repealed all the taxes except for the tax on tea. Sporadic violence in Boston in the 1770s. Within the colonies, antipathy rose regarding the loyalties of the colonists. Some segregation occurred based on these loyalties. Establishments were identified as having owners who felt that Great Britain was well within its rights to enforce the taxes even though they were harsh at times. Those colonists felt that some of their neighbors were like insolent children who must be disciplined and regulated. Gradually, those people, their homes, their stores, and establishments were known as Tory-affiliated. Another term they used was loyalist. Other colonists looked upon themselves as builders of a new country, forged out of open vacant land and developed an economy where there was none or never before. Their greatest loyalty resided within the sphere of the 13 colonies, not with a distant country in which they had no voting rights and no means to recommend legislation that would aid in the colonies. They were interested when England kept charging new taxes and emphasizing their own domination. Also, the poorer colonists and agrarian workers were also afflicted by poor harvest, found those taxes especially oppressive. They called themselves patriots. As tempers flared, some colonists took out their own hostilities on each other. Occasionally, there were violent instances. In February of 1770, P. 
Patriots threw rocks through the windows of a store operated by a loyalist in Boston, where the British official Ebenezer Richardson attempted to intervene by firing his own gun to break up the crowd. He accidentally killed a child. The colonists were shocked and enraged. Other incidents occurred, particularly with regard to British tax officials. In March, violence erupted between a British soldier regarding a custom house. When the official called for backup, more British soldiers arrived and fights broke out in the streets. Suddenly, bells rang out in Boston and a number of patriots toting sticks and clubs descended upon the scene. Unexpectedly, a British soldier yelled, fire, and the other soldiers began shooting. Five colonists were killed and six wounded. As a result of this, the acting British governor, Thomas Hutchison, arrested eight soldiers. Six were acquitted and two were convicted of manslaughter. Those two were sentenced to branding on their hands, a deplorable practice by today's standards, and were given short sentences. Ironically, their defense counsel was John Adams, who later became an American president. How crazy is that? The Boston Tea Party of 1773. When English imported Chinese tea from the British East India Company, the people in England paid no tax on it at all because of the East India Company was owned by the British. However, they taxed the colonists on that very same deal. One night, a huge group of mostly made up of members of the Sons of Liberty dressed themselves in the garb of Native Americans, boldly boarded the ships, and dumped the contents of 342 chests loaded with tea leaves. The frightened British soldiers had never seen Native Americans before and made no attempts to intervene. The Cohesive Acts of 1774. King George and his eventual parliament decided to punish the, the people of Boston and their colony. They passed the Cohesive Acts, which the colonists dubbed as intolerable acts, some of the percepts were. The Boston Port Act, by which the British closed the Port of Boston, shutting off all imports and exports until such times as the colonies would pay back the British for the tea theft. Next, the Massachusetts Government Act, which forbade all local town meetings and restricted the governor's council to appointed members only. Next, the Administration of Justice Act, granting all British officials immunity from prosecution under local Massachusetts law. And lastly, the Quebec Act, permitted Catholics to, to practice their religion right on the Canadian borders of the people in the colonies, most of whom were Protestants. At his next meeting of the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg, Washington leaped up and complained bitterly of the altar of cities at Boston. He said, I will raise a thousand men, subsist them at my own expense, and march them on to relief of Boston.